The reading today comes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 25. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees you did not plant. When you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God is in the midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give you uh, to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord had promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us. If we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord, our God, he has commanded us. This is the word of the Lord. Shasta, not the cola, thinks that he's the unluckiest person in the world. You might know which character in a book I'm referencing. I'm referencing probably my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Horse and His Boy. And the main character, or at least one of them, is named Shasta, and he thinks he's the most unluckiest person in the world. And one of the reasons that he thinks he's one of the most unfortunate people is that he has met so many lions, and not in a good way. He is telling of his uh, unfortunate events, and he tells, uh, tells of his escape from a fisherman who he was raised by, who was cruel and mean to him because he didn't know his real father and mother. He escaped from there only to be chased by lions. The lions forced him and his uh, friend that was with him, Arabus, and her horse into the water where they had to swim for their lives. And then he, as he's making his escape through one of the cities, he goes to these tombs. And at these tombs, what does he hear? But jackals and beasts howling at him, and, and then a great lion roars again and scares him again. Then he crosses the desert, again, another unfortunate place to have been. And when he's almost there, they're about to reach their goal. What do they have? Another lion comes, chases them, and wounds his friend. He tells all this to a voice. He notices something kind of lurking in the darkness, and he can't see what it is, and it scares him. He, he doesn't know if it's a person, is this a ghoul, a ghost, or, or a beast. All he can hear is a voice, and the voice says, tell me your sorrows, and he unloads all of these things and says, I'm surely the most unfortunate person to have lived. And the voice says, I don't think so. And he says, well, don't you think it's unfortunate to at least to have met so many lions? And he says, you met one lion. Well, how do you know that I met only one lion? He says, well, I was the lion. This is the great lion, the, the, the godlike character in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan. The, this is the lion that chased them in the middle of the night, that roared at him, scaring him, that growled, that was warming him actually in the tombs as well as a cat, purred softly and kept him comforted, and that scratched his friend 
clawed her, wounding her, all for his good and for the salvation of a city and of a people. He was not unlucky or unfortunate because he'd heard the voice of the one great lion. In Deuteronomy, when we come to this book, audience, the original audience of this book, and we as the audience of this book, we, we might feel a little bit like Shasta's story. We read it, and sometimes there's some purring and some comfort and warmth that we receive from the text. And at other times, it seems like there's growling and clawing coming from this voice that is speaking here. There is blessing and there is cursing, and there's quick shifts between the two. So it's not as if like, well, this is the feel-good passage, and this is going to be the one that's going to wound us. They're back to back, they're, they're blended together, and there's quick shifts between them, and yet throughout this book, we're hearing one voice. And this is the voice that if you hear this voice, you are hearing an unspeakable mercy, because it's the voice of the one true living God. And to hear him growl, or to hear him purr and bring comfort, both are a mercy. So whatever form it comes to us. Yeah, in Deuteronomy, he calls this people, the people of Israel, about to enter the promised land. He calls them to love him because he has first loved them. He has first redeemed them, chosen them, drawn them up out of Egypt. But then the tone shifts and he gives them warnings and exhortations. In chapter 6, we see all of these in one chapter. And last week, we, we went through this famous passage, maybe one of the, the key texts in all of the scripture, the Shema in, Hebrew, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, where it says that you should love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And after this command to love, then he shifts quickly and not, uh, no longer gives any more positive command, love the Lord your God. Now he's going to shift to don't do some things. A little bit more warning, not only warning, but definitely some warning. He says, I'm going to head these in three headings here. Don't forget the Lord. Don't test the Lord. And don't be silent about the work of the Lord. And these commands and the tone, they, they need to be heard differently than some of the other parts of Deuteronomy that we've heard so far, but it's still coming from the same voice, the voice of the one true living God. So with the anticipation of entering into the promised land, Moses continues addressing the people, instructing them for then, the, the time when they will enter and be in the promised land. Listen to verse 10. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, when you eat and are full, then you're going to do something. And the, the promise that he references here is a promise that goes back beyond Sinai, beyond Moses' own lifetime, all the way back to I, Abraham and the patriarchs, the forefathers. There's this promise that goes back to then, further than Moses. It's a promise of long ago. And now, although the, the, the promise is, is unchanged, things in the context is, is different. The promised land that they're going to go into, the land that God swore to Abraham, is now full of cities. It's full of people, not Abraham's people. It's full of people. It's full of armies. They have uh, walls built up around their cities, fortified places. But Moses, when he speaks of that place, speaks of it with certainty that this people that's sitting outside of it, kind of a ragged group of people that have been wandering around the wilderness for 40 years, he speaks with certainty that that people is going to be in that place. He speaks with certainty because he's speaking about the promises of God. He knows that when the Lord God, the Lord their God, the one that has revealed himself to them in his mighty power, in his mighty words, in his mighty acts, that when he promises something, it isn't a matter of if, it's a matter of when. It's going to happen. And God's people need to have that level of certainty when they hear God's promises. When we're hearing that one voice, we need to have the sense of certainty about what he's saying, that what he says is going to happen because of who he is and because of what he has done. When he says something, when he makes a promise, we can be sure that it's going to happen. God's people need to know that their God is faithful and that all of his promises are not a matter of if, but a matter of when. It's going to happen. And this is how to move forward with relationship with God, right? We act by faith upon the, his promises, trusting that he is faithful to every single bit of his word. All of his promises will be completed. And just think in your own life of the hope that that can just breathe into you. 
Yeah, there's, there's darkness all around. It seems to be suffocating, but the light of the world has come, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Darkness will not overcome it, the promise. It might look like we're losing, but already the true light is already shining. It might look like because the, light is, the darkness is so suffocating that it's going to end in defeat, but we know for, of God's promises that he promises victory to all those who trust in him, and he's going to deliver on his promises. The deciding factor is not the difficulty of the context or the difficulty of the promise. The deciding factor is who made the promise. And who made these promises that Moses carries with such certainty is the Lord your God. He's faithful. The deciding factor is who made this promise. Yeah, the promised land is full of fortified cities, a great number of people, armies, but the difficulty is not with that. It's with trusting that the Lord is going to be faithful to His promises. The God that promised long ago that His people would be in there is still going to fulfill His word. All of these verses right here, and a lot of Deuteronomy, is predicated on this very fact that God is faithful to his promises, that they're going to get where he promised they were going to get. And so there's this talking about the, the promised land, not of, not of a, a when you get there, and of a then, once you're there, here's what you're going to do. That's how Moses speaks of it with such certainty. And in verse 12, he says, then, when, when the wind turns to a then, he says, here's what you need to do. Take care, lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. The, the order is important here. When God does as he promised to do, how are you going to respond? And, and that is the right order. God works. He acts. He is who he is. He's the one who's made the promises. And then they, as the people, are to respond rightly to who God is, what he has done, and what he has promised. So when God does this, when this faithful God faithfully fulfills his promises... How are God's people to respond? Well, God demands faithfulness in return, in response to his faithfulness. When the wind turns to then, Israel's to take care. It's a warning. Take care, lest you forget. And look what they're forgetting. Not just the Lord's faithfulness. They're not just forgetting a detail about the Lord. They're forgetting the Lord. That's what the warning is about. Take care, lest you forget the Lord. The Lord is the one who's going to bring them into the promised land, this is a place that, as you read it, 10 and 11, it's, it's, it's a, an abundant place. He's already described it as this place that's flowing with milk and honey. Here's all these things provided for them that they had no hand in. They didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. When they come into this good place of abundance with these good gifts to enjoy, then they're supposed to do something. The, the description that Moses gives of the promised land is almost Edenic, right? God creates this great place. And there's all these things that are provided for them. Adam and Eve hadn't cultivated anything yet when they jumped into the good of the garden and everything is provided for them all around. And they have this Lord who is, wants to be in relationship with them, provides this place for them. And Moses is speaking of the promised land in those kind of ways. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. God is putting you there because he's gracious. The Lord is going to bring them there. But like Eden, there's temptation in that place. The temptation will be there to wonder from what they've heard, what they have been told, and so the warning comes, take care, lest you forget the Lord. This vigorous warning is, is aimed, it's, it's not just aimed at their memory. When you hear, don't forget, we think like, yeah, it's aimed at their, their mind, aimed at their memories, but it, it's aimed a little further down at their hearts. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, listen to the connection between kind of the, the memory the, and the heart. Only take care, Deuteronomy 4.9, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. There's this connection here that he's talking about. Your, your memory is connected to your heart. Right? This forgetfulness is not just yielding like it's not just an absent-mindedness. It's yielding disobedience. And that's exactly what Israel's history shows, that they're Forgetfulness is going to lead into disobedience to God. Remember the Red Sea. Man, what did they just experience when they came out of Egypt? Plagues where God had targeted the Egyptians and let them go free. Over and over again, mighty power, strength. That this is the one true living God and that he's the Israel's God has evidence in the Exodus story. And yet they get to the Red Sea. 
on the heels of this great and mighty work that God had shown to them, and they get there and they think, well, now we're dead because the army's behind us and the sea's in front of us. They forgot, and so they cried out. Or how about when they get into the wilderness? Again, fresh off the Red Sea experience, they get out in the wilderness and they think, well, now we're going to die. Because we're in a barren place. How is God going to provide for us out here? And they start complaining and disobeying and rebelling against their God. This is their past. Their forgetfulness is yielding over and over again, disobedience and rebellion to the one true living God. And for us, it's easy to look at those and think, how in the world could you have forgotten those things? Not only were they fresh in your mind, but the amazing power was displayed and shown. Like, how in the world could you forget? But I think that's the wrong response. I think Paul tells us a better response to looking back and seeing their memory loss. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, what does he say? When we're looking back, and he's actually doing that in this passage, he looks back at their example and he says, take heed. Do you think you stand, take heed, lest you too fall along with them? See, Israel's danger of forgetting their God isn't something they're going to leave in the past, as if now, once they move into the promised land, that obedience is going to be completely easy, easy and that, that forgetting the Lord is not going to be a, a constant danger. It is going to be a constant danger. Even in the promised land, even with all of its abundance and goodness, there's going to be danger there and temptation there. There's an inclination for people to enjoy gifts and forget the giver, to let blessings and the goodness and abundance kind of lull them to sleep to, to who provided this thing and who sustains this thing. It's, there's a temptation to think when, when life is easier, perhaps obedience is a little bit easier as well. And in the midst of that, Moses would say, take care lest you forget the Lord. And Paul comes along and says, you better take heed if you think you stand because you might just fall. There's this inclination away from doing the right thing and taking heed and, and making sure we're careful about things and walking just slightly, slowly down a path in disobedience to God. Here they are in the promised land. Moses is speaking of it as if they're already there. With the promises fulfilled and the abundance of the promised land, Israel is going to be tempted to let their guard down and forget their God. And in our lives, whenever or wherever we think we stand, for whatever reason we think we stand, maybe it's abundance, maybe we're lulled to sleep by the provision of God, wherever that is, we are to take heed lest we fall. And so Moses gives them a vigorous warning about forgetting, and then he exhorts them. All right, so don't forget. Here's the, kind of the opposite. It's the Lord your God you shall fear, verse 13. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Ooh, look back up in, in chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, and, and we're told to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. And now here we're told to fear him. And it seems like we've been kind of going back and forth between the two. So it's, it's, are we supposed to love the Lord or are we supposed to fear the Lord? And the answer is yes. They need to be seen rightly as synonymous terms in the scripture. That is, we need to remember that the right fear of God leans toward him. It's not a fear that's afraid. That's not what we're speaking of when we think about the fear of God. We're not speaking of being afraid of God. It's a safe fear. And it's a safe fear because it knows of God's love. I've always found Psalm 130 verse 4 a little bit confusing. With the Lord there's forgiveness that he may be feared. That seems like opposite things. But they are opposite things if you're thinking about being afraid of God. But again, the, the fear of God is not being afraid of God. When, when the forgiveness of God, when the love of God, when the mercy of God is rightly known, then there is going to be right fear of God. Again, I think that Narnia can help us with this. We're back in the horse and his boy. Shasta, after talking to this voice, the great Aslan, he listens to him explain that every lion was him, that, that there was only one lion. And, and here's his response. Here's how it's written. I think it's a beautiful display and picture of the fear of the Lord. Shasta was no longer afraid that that voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new, different, new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad. So here he comes to this voice, he's scared of it, he thinks it might be a ghoul, a ghost, a beast, like he doesn't know, but it might destroy him, and then he hears the voice speak, and then he gets to this place where he's no longer afraid the voice is going to eat him, and yet that doesn't stop all trembling. He's still trembling before the voice. 
And yet that trembling doesn't then stamp out all gladness and joy. He's still glad in his heart as well. And that's the right fear of God. We're not afraid, but we're not without trembling or without gladness when we approach him. One author says it this way, that godly fear, again, that's the right fear of God, godly fear flows from a sense of the love and kindness of God. That's exactly what Moses is talking about when he says in verse 13 to fear. Remember, he just recalled in verse 12 the redemption of the Lord. Don't forget how God brought you out of slavery. And then he moves in because of God's redemption, his love, his mercy, that he has overflowed to you and pulled you out of slavery because of that greatness, because of that mercy, because of that love. What are you to do? You're to fear. It's that love that goes first. And when they know that love, then they rightly fear. They've been redeemed from slavery, so they are now free to serve the Lord, and they are to fear him in their service of him. But he says also to fear him and to swear only by his name. That is, he's the authority, and there's no greater authority in their lives than him, so they swear only by him because he is their authority over their lives. So fear and service and and swearing to his name is the activity and the right response of sons of God and no longer slaves. He's freed them from slavery. They're not that anymore. There is a right response, though, for them. Fear and service of God and living under his authority. They're not slaves, and so here's what they should do. Verse 14, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst. He's a jealous God. Unless the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now there's the less purring kitten and more roaring lion, right? And there's Moses getting at the, the constant allurement for the people of God that they're going to face in the promised land. And the constant allure is to go after other gods, to chase after other things, to serve them. To have another authority over them that that is greater than the one true living God. The one who had brought them out of slavery. The one who had redeemed them, chosen them, loved them, made a covenant with them. The the appeal is always going to be from other gods to chase after them. And he says here again that he said a few times in Deuteronomy that God is jealous. And again we need to notice that his jealousy isn't touchy. He's not waiting to, to just light something up. Notice that what his jealousy is fixed on, and you're going to find this when you talk about the jealousy of God throughout the scripture, his jealousy is fixed on one thing, it's fixed on idolatry, and rightly so. Here's the one true living God who loves them, who redeemed them, who's made a covenant with them, and his jealousy of them shows the intensity of his love for them, the intensity of his commitment to them. And he not only loves them intensely, but he's in their very midst. He's not loving them from a distance. He loves them and he's with them. He's in their midst. What a grace for them. A grace that other nations don't know in the same way. He's set them apart. They're his people. And because they're his people and because he's their Lord and because he's in their midst and he loves them, there can be no other gods. Like the God spot in, in Israel's life is taken. So there's no room for any others there. And when others try to crowd into that space that only the one true living God belongs in, uh, anger is kindled. Can you imagine? Again, I, I said this before, but just imagine. If, if a husband comes home with a, a girlfriend, and the wife's there and she's just fine with it. Like he, like, we, we know, like, instinctually, like, something's wrong with this picture. It, it's, it would be wrong if there would be no anger or some sense of emotion kindled in that situation. Like, the wife's spot is taken in this house. The girlfriend has no space to come into that. The instincts tell us that we can't say to that that that's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a violation of love, completely destructive to the marriage relationship. And God's warning of the same here. Have no other gods before me. It's a violation of the love that I have shown to you. It's destructive to the relationship that I have forged with you. It is corrosive to the covenant that I have made with you. And so it kindles his anger. 
and brings about destruction in the relationship. If they go after other gods, here's what he says is going to happen. They're going to go the way that the nations of those other gods go. And the spoiler alert is that it doesn't go well for the other nations. And he warns here with the claws kind of out to show them the intensity of not only his love, but of his holiness and greatness. This is not a God to be trifled with. He, he warns them, don't go that way. He gives them a better way. Moses is addressing their root dilemma. Again, the root dilemma is idolatry. He says, take care. Don't forget the Lord. And as those who come to this text with the same root issues, which are always, whatever your problem is, at the root of your problem, at the root of your sin, at the root of your rebellion is an idol. Could be lots of different things, but at the root is idolatry. And we have hearts that are idol factories. They're producing more and more idols. We think we might pull one up and another is produced. When we come to this text, we need to hear those words too. And take heed too, lest we fall. Because I think that it's true that if you put us in a position like Israel, where it seems that we might be able to gain power, or we might be able to gain favor, or we might be able to gain notoriety in the land through receiving idols, and who knows what we might be capable of. Like, look around. It's displayed all the time. When we thought we were following the one true living God, turns out an idol came along and they were quick to go after that because they weren't following that God after all. Put us in a position like that, and now we need to hear again. Take care, lest you forget the Lord. Let's take care and not forget that there's only one Lord, that the God place is taken, and we have reserved for him, this ultimate place, and we are to give to him exclusive love and worship that, that belongs to no one else. Let's not forget his deliverance that he has given to us, that he has chosen us and loved us and delivered us through his son, that he has brought us out of slavery, that he has saved us from slavery to dead idols and brought us into sonship, into this loving relationship with him, into a community of those who are in this same sonship. Remember that he loves us intensely and that he's in our midst. And in response to that, we love him and we fear him and we serve him and we submit to him because he's worthy of these things. He, he's calling for from the people of God, from Israel here, from us. Like the, the call is to give all of our love and loyalty to the one that it belongs to, the one who loved and redeemed, who's in our midst. And he says, don't forget the Lord. Now, must, they must not only not forget the Lord, but that gives us to the second portion where they also must not test the Lord as they did in the past. Verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, this test is found in Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus chapter 17, here's what happens. All the congregation of the people of Israel, they moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. So how are they moving? God's leading them. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and they said, give us water to drink. And Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, well, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff by which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel. It's like, let's doubly remember how bad this place was. And they were saying, they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, in some ways, when they get to this point, and they test the Lord, it, it seems a little bit understandable. They're a, a refugee people. They've just come out of what they've all known for all of their lives. They're in the middle of a, of a pretty difficult place in the wilderness. Like, it's, it's an arid place. 
They're under some duress and hardship. There's, there's no water and there's no evident prospect of relief that's immediately available around them. But what those hardships and that duress is exposing, it's exposing the, the depth of the hardness of their hearts, the depth of their rebellion against the one true living God. The Lord had just brought them out of Egypt. Like how do slaves get freed from a superpower when they have nothing to offer? Well, you better have the right God on your side. And they did. He came to them. He met them. He heard them. He delivered them. He brought them out of Egypt. He provided for them. Provided abundantly for them as they left. Like even that morning, the morning that they test the Lord at Massa, manna fell from the sky, fed them. In that day, God had shown his power. He'd shown his trustworthiness. He'd shown his love, his goodness, his mercy. And in response, they doubted God. They tested him. God had given them everything. They were nothing without him. And they get to this point and they think, after all God has done for them and given them, that God's going to hold out water on us now? Somehow he's going to let us die of thirst here? They're acting as rebels and not as sons. And they test God. That's what Moses says. He puts it on the Lord. How are you testing the Lord? Not just testing Moses. Because it was the Lord who had led them even that day. The cloud pillar led them to this place where it's arid and there's no water. The Lord did that. And so when they rebel, they're not rebelling just against the one who's leading them in Moses. They're rebelling against the one who's leading them in the Lord. And it's his character that's on the line. It's his name that is being tested. And it's a faithless response. Psalm 95 talks about this response and it shows that it issues from their hardened hearts that were going astray. And out of all the failures of that generation, right? You read through the, the book of Exodus and think about that wilderness generation and all their failures. And out of all the failures, this one to me it is, it seems like the easiest to scoff at. This is the one that I think like, not only in the scripture, I think it's the most infamous that it's, it's picked up in a couple different places. Even Moses picks it up a few times, but it's easy for me to look at that and be like, how could you? And yet, put us under hardship. Put us in difficulty. Put us under duress. Take away any evident prospect of deliverance and see if our hearts don't show some hardness and some doubt that we don't put the Lord to the test. Don't we do this daily, maybe weekly? I have the, the, the tendency to think like, okay, Sunday's the time we, we get prepared, we want to hear from the Lord, and then we just, we pour it all out. And I, I come around to Monday and Tuesday and I think, how in the world can I do this again? Then I get to Friday and Saturday and I think like, I'm not ready, I can't do this again. How is God going to do this again? Like, he better do something. And guess what? I don't know how many, I've been here a while, like, he's always done it. And yet every week I come back to the same cycle. Am I any different? Are you any different? Don't we daily, maybe weekly have this anxiety and fear or doubt that God is going to see us through something? Like God has seen us through all of that, but he's not going to see me through my work issue this week. God has seen me through all of that, but that relational strife and trouble that I'm having right now, I'm not sure that God's going to show up to that. God has seen me through all this, but how am I going to endure this suffering? How is he going to give me what I need? How could he do that? Israel was quick to forget the Lord's past provision, even that day. They were probably hours. The, the taste of manna was fresh on their lips, likely, when they come to this place. And we can be just like that. Though we have more words. And Jesus says, look around. See the birds? God cares about you more than that. He's going to feed the birds. He'll feed you too. Look at the flowers. He's clothing them. He's going to take care of you. You can trust him. Israel tested and doubting, doubted, wondering if the Lord can give them what they need, and we can look around and do the same thing. Like, is God going to give me what I need for this family trouble? Is he going to give me what I need to endure this suffering? Is he going to need, give me what I need to endure this trial that's right in front of me? And yet we know more, right? Romans 8.32, he didn't spare his own son for us. And so that leads to the question, how will he also not with him? He gave his son, right? That shows the extent of what he's willing to do for us. 
how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Is he going to leave us to die of thirst in the wilderness when he's delivered us from so much? God has shown us his power, his trustworthiness, his goodness, his love, his mercy. And so what we should do in response is not doubt him, not test him, not be hard-hearted, but receive rightly from him, knowing who he is and what he's like, and know that whatever's in front of us, the difficulty might be great, but our Lord is better, greater. And so we can step into that relational problem. We can step into that suffering, and we can do it by faith, knowing the Lord our God who's delivered us. That if he didn't spare his own son, he's going to give us what we need to endure whatever he puts in front of us. That we're going to be sustained through life or death, we know he's with us. This is the battle that goes on in all of us. It's the battle of Israel, it's the battle in our hearts, the battle of unbelief, it's, it's ongoing. And because Moses knows that, he gives ongoing instruction. He gives it to Israel. It, don't retest the Lord. It's certainly possible, he knows it's a capability of theirs once they get there, but he instructs them otherwise. Verse 17, you shall diligently instead do something different. Keep the commands of the Lord. And his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go into the land and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Moses thinks this is an entirely repeatable offense, so he says, don't test, obey. Do what's good and right in the land. Trust the Lord and, and listen to what he says. Here's what... Israel is to do with all that they should, instead of having this hard-hearted response, this, this doubting response, says, let's make a clean break with that, and let's start keeping the word of the Lord. Let's obey it. Let's do what God has said. Let's do right and good. Let's get a new start by God's grace. And the, the entry into the promised land should mark this clean break from the past. So let's move away from testing. That was a bad episode, pretty infamous. Like, let's get away from that, and let's move towards obeying. And so, like, you're going to see this command repeated. It's already been repeated in six chapters of Deuteronomy. He keeps saying, hear, listen, obey, do, keep. All of these things are going to be repeated to show us not only the clarity that we need for the promised land, but the force that we need. Like, key in the promised land is going to be obedience. It's not difficult in terms of what you need to understand. You need to hear and do. But it's something they need constantly put in front of them. Despite all the past failures... They're going into the promised land, and Moses prepares them for when they get there. Gives them some warnings, exhortations, and some instructions. And he finishes chapter 6 with verses 20 through 25, and here's what he says. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? You shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he has brought us out from there that he might bring us into, in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all of these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. So you, you see the context that they talk about when you get to the promised land, there's rightly ordered relationships. Hopefully they're listening to the 10 words that God had passed down to them, right? You're, there's a relationship of, of honor and love, and that's in the, within the relationship of family, but also within the sense of authorities that you're going to have these rightly ordered relationships. They're full of love. They're full of respect. And within those rightly ordered relationships in the promised land, there's going to be the context that's going to bring about these questions. And they're good questions. What's the meaning of this is the question, like, why are we doing these things? What's happening here? Why do we live the way we live? Why are we doing what we're doing? What, what's going on? Where does that come from and why is it there? In other words, I think that they're going to be in this context where they're, they're able to see and, and know that there's a difference in the way they're living, that they're living uniquely, that, that maybe they could look around at surrounding nations and think there's a difference here. Or maybe they can look around even within their camp and say like, some people are doing these words and some people aren't. There's a difference, and then that's going to lead to questions. And those who hear the questions, they don't have no answer. They're not to be silent, right? Don't be silent, but speak the truth. And what does he tell them to say? Tell them. Tell them the story of redemption. Tell them how God has delivered you. 
Tell them how, how God has, has brought you out from slavery and he's given you this good place for you to live in. He wants you to be here. Tell them all those things. The what's the meaning of this law type questions are to be met with the story of this God loving them, choosing them, redeeming them, acting upon them, making a covenant with them. In other words, the law, again, is set against the backdrop of love, redemption, mercy, and the foundation is this God who has shown all these things, and so the foundation is who God is and what he has done. There is never to be a time in Israel's history in the promised land when they think of the law apart from God and who he is and what he has done. His character, his work. There's never to be a time when they think of law-keeping as the way to earn something in terms of position and status and standing before God. You already have these things. He's already redeemed you. He's already placed you in the promised land. And so our law-keeping doesn't bring about God's salvation or his acceptance or belonging before him. That's the response to all that he's shown us. God has saved us. He's shown us mercy. He's made a covenant with us. So we do and we keep his commands. That's what they're to tell them. It's a gracious God and it's from his gracious redemption that they're to kind of retell the story and to respond. What does he tell them to respond with? Verse 24. We're going to do all the Lord commanded us. We're going to fear the Lord for our good always that he might preserve us as we are to this day. Why? Why do we obey? Why do we command? Partly because it's for our good, he says. Amen. So that we might be preserved. God hasn't hidden his intentions here. God hasn't hidden how they are to live the good life. He's shown them. Again, that was unique out of all other gods. There's one God who speaks, and there's one God who makes known what he wants from his people. He gives them commands. It's mercy, mercy, mercy. And he doesn't hide his intentions. And actually, he speaks it out, and he wants them to make it explicit. When they ask you, tell them of my good intentions. Tell them what I desire for you. He wants them to know that this is for their good, Amen. that he might preserve them. He cares for them. He, he knows this, the serpentine hiss is going to come along. And the temptation is going to come that's going to say, did God really say? And it's going to tempt them to, to disconnect, again, God's word from God's character. The temptation to separate who God is from his commands. So that his commands now seem overbearing, harsh, mean. God's trying to zap all of our fun. He knows that temptation is coming. So he says, don't hide my good intentions here. I want good for you. I want to preserve you. I want good things for you in this land that I have provided for you. Don't listen to the voice that said, well, did God really say? Then would separate who I am from what I've commanded. But from the beginning, God's word has always worked this way, hasn't it? God's word in the garden was a good word that if they listened to it, would have, they'd have life. And if they disobeyed it, God said you'd bring death into the world. God's words were always designed for God's people's good. Always. There's never been a time when that wasn't true, when his word was meant for people's good. Listening in Hebrews is, is connected to life. Listening always leads to life. Not hearing always leads away from life into death. And Moses says, the Lord has shown you his good intentions, and you have an answer when these questions come. Why are we doing this? Well, what's, the, what's this all behind the law? What's the meaning of this law? He says, don't be silent. Give an answer. Rooted rightly in who I am and what I've done. Rooted rightly in the redemption that I've given to you, that I've won for you. God meant this for our good, you're to tell them, to preserve us in this land. Remember his redemption. Remember his love. Remember that we were slaves. Fear him. Obey his commands. It's for our good. They have an answer. I love singing when we sing here, the song, Is He Worthy? It's this song where we, we kind of respond, right? We, we have a call and response. Is he worthy? He is. Like, it goes back and forth. Is he worthy of, of, of all glory and honor? And he is. Like, we, we rehearse these truths and we respond with these answers. We ask these questions and we answer. And we're rehearsing truths together, which reinforce the truths themselves. But they're also, they're teaching us. They're building into us answers, so that when we get to that moment and, and we think about, is the darkness overcoming us? No, no, we sang that. 
is the darkness going to fade away? Yes, it is. Does God intend to dwell with us? Is that really his purpose? Or does he just want to hang us out to dry? Does he intend to dwell with us again? He does. Yes, he does. And he's going to come make it right one day. Is he going to do that? He is. So then is he worthy of, of, of all of my life and my full devotion, my full loyalty, all that I can give to him, of, of loving him with my, all my soul and my heart and my might? He is. He is. So here's what we need to do. We need to keep asking those questions, and then we need to keep stepping right into the answers based upon what God has said and who God actually is. His character, his words, his work, his, his ways are, are shown to us, and they're shown to us to be good all the way through, through and through. You're never going to find a part of them that's like, well, we like all of this, but this part's a little bit rotten. Where we're seeing that, we're misunderstanding him, not him being wrong. And we need to step into the goodness of God and keep walking and say, like, we know his good intention. It doesn't feel very good sometimes to obey this command, but we know God wants good for us. And he has told us what that is. We know God wants to preserve us. And he tells us, tells us how he's going to do that. So let's fear him and obey his commands. Amen. To step into those answers, to do what God has commanded, brings real results. And that's what Moses says in verse 25. There's a real result from this. He says, and it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment for the Lord our God as he has commanded us. The result is righteousness. They'll be in right standing, right relationship with God who made a gracious covenant with them, who's been good to them, who's spoken to them, who's commanded them. They're going to live the good life, in other words, righteous life. I love the simplicity of these verses. There's a simplicity to what God is calling them to, isn't there? Obey. Do what I've commanded. We shouldn't overlook the simplicity here. And just commit to obey. That's what he wants from them. Obey me. And not to be silent about any of God's intentions, any of his commands, any of his word. They're to speak. They're going to make it known. They're to answer appropriately when they get into the promised land. Because they have known and seen who this God is. Now, as we come to the end of Deuteronomy 6, I think that it's interesting that a compelling case can be made that this was Jesus' favorite chapter in the Bible. He quotes verses 4 and 5, verse 13, verse 16. Now, I don't think that it likely it was Israel's favorite chapter. They didn't hear it well, at least for long, because we know that they don't love the Lord their God with all of their heart, soul, and might. That they do forget the Lord when they're in the promised land and turn to other gods. That they test him and doubt him. That they're silent when they're asked the questions about, how did you get here? Why are you doing these things? Perhaps in chapter 6, they only heard the roar of a lion instead of the voice of the lion. They neglected to heed and take care to what was said here. But this was Jesus' favorite chapter, perhaps. And Jesus stepped into that failure. He, he treasured chapter 6 in his heart that he might not sin against God. So that when some legal experts come to trick him, so that they can kill him, and ask him, well, what's the greatest commandment? He, he doesn't have to think long to come up with an answer. Because this word is hidden in his heart. And he gives them back chapter 6, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and might. That's what he replies, because it was already there. When he's out in the wilderness after 40 days of fasting, and Satan himself comes to tempt him, like both pretty extreme examples. You've been under duress for a while. And now Satan, the, the chief tempter, the father of lies, comes to you, and he's whispering in your ears. And when he tempts you, he, he goes to this. Oh, why don't you throw yourself off of this temple? You shall not put the Lord your God to a test. Verse 13, or verse 16. Why don't you bow down and serve me? Verse 13. Because it's the Lord you're to fear, and him only shall you serve. Jesus knew the answers. He knew them in the, under intensity. These powder keg situations under great duress because he'd meditated on this word and he had it ready. He 
treasured in his heart. And where others, Israel and others, lacked love, where they forgot their Lord, where they tested him, where they were silent, where they disobeyed, Jesus was faithful. And the good news is, is all while we have not achieved any higher than Israel, that the scripture is faithful to attest to us that no one is righteous, not even one. The good news is that he was perfectly righteous. And that he offers us his righteousness. And though at times in this word we might hear growling and be scared, we might be chased, wounded even, or maybe at times we hear warmth and purring. Here's what we know. There's only one voice. And it's this voice only that we should submit to. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for being a God who speaks. And Lord, you don't just speak, you speak clearly. And you speak promises. Promises that you have fulfilled and that you will fulfill, God. You are faithful to us. God, help us to be a people who, because of that, wants to obey. We pray, Father, that we would be a people who doesn't see your commands and your laws as a condition for your kindness and your goodness, but rather a response to it. God, you have been so good and so kind to us. You have promised us everything. You've promised us yourself. And while we know a, a promised land awaits us, God, in, in many ways we are experiencing it right now because we have you. We have the greatest blessing that we could ever have right here in this broken, fallen world. And yet it's so easy for us, Lord, to look around and to chase idols and to think that we can be fulfilled in other ways through other things. We listen to other voices that pull our eyes down, cause us to put trust and hope in things that will ultimately fail us. God, help us to be careful, to hear your word, and to allow it to move our hearts to want to serve you because you have been so good, because you are so good. Father, we just praise you this morning. We're grateful for this good word that you've given us. We thank you, God, that you have shown each and every one of us this faithfulness that we have heard about this morning. Help us to remember always, God, in Christ's name, amen.